This is VOA News, reporting via remote. I'm Richard Green. A ceasefire between Israel and Palestinian militants has taken effect in a bid to end nearly three days of violence that has killed dozens of Palestinians. Egyptian officials had worked to bring the sides to an agreement after the flare-up of fighting that saw Israeli aircraft pound targets in Gaza and militants fire hundreds of rockets that reached deep into Israel. Rocket fire and airstrikes continued until the scheduled start of the truce before midnight local time. More than 40 Palestinians were killed in the violence, including 15 children and four women. Israel said some of the deaths during this round were caused by errant rocket fire, including one incident in a refugee camp in northern Gaza in which six Palestinians were killed Saturday. U.S. President Joe Biden issued a statement Sunday saying he welcomed the ceasefire. He called on all parties to fully implement the ceasefire and to ensure fuel and some humanitarian supplies flow into Gaza as the fighting subsides. Negotiations for the release of U.S. women's basketball star Brittany Griner from a Russian jail continue. AP correspondent Shelley Adler reports. I think she's going to be freed. Former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Bill Richardson. I think she has the right strategy of contrition, a good legal team. Richardson, who admits to being a catalyst in the negotiations but not directly involved, told ABC This Week with George Stephanopoulos he's expecting a breakthrough. There's going to be a prisoner swap, though, and I think it'll be two for two. Uh, involving he's... Paul Whelan. We can't forget him. Whelan is in a Russian jail on spy charges. I'm Shelley Adler. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said on Monday that the risk of nuclear confrontation had, re- had returned after decades, calling on nuclear states to commit to no first use of the weapons. This is VOA News. Guterres made the remarks two days after attending the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Cemetery ceremony to commemorate the 77th anniversary of the world's first atomic bombing. Guterres also said any attack on a nuclear plant is a suicidal thing, responding to reports of renewed Russian shelling of the Zaporizhia facility in Ukraine, Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Colombia's first leftist president was sworn into office Sunday. Gustavo Petro, a former member of Colombia's M-19 guerrilla group, won the presidential election in June by beating conservative parties that offered moderate changes to the market-friendly economy but failed to connect with voters frustrated by rising poverty and violence. On Sunday, Petro said Colombia was getting a second chance to tackle violence and poverty and called on Washington to change its drug policies. He has promised to fight inequality and bring peace to a country long haunted, haunted by bloody feuds, feuds between the government, drug traffickers, and rebel groups. Cuba appeared to make progress Sunday in bringing a fire under control at its main storage facility near the capital, Havana. A lightning strike on Friday ignited one of the eight storage tanks at the Matanzas super tanker east of the Cuban capital. One firefighter was killed battling the inferno. Firefighters from Mexico and Venezuela were sent to help Cuba to battle the disaster. A second tank on fire on Saturday, catching firefighters and others at the scene by surprise. Sixteen people were missing. And Chad's transitional authorities and rebel groups are expected to sign an agreement in Doha on Monday, paving the way to a broader national reconciliation dialogue later this month. The announcement from the Foreign Ministry of Qatar follows four months of peace-building talks in Qatar between rebel factions and Chad's interim military government, headed by Mahatma Idris Debi, who seized power following his father's death last year. 
Debbie has said the dialogue will be a first step toward planning long-awaited elections, but it is not being clear if the armed groups will participate in the talks as the terms for their involvement were under discussion. Recapping our top story. A ceasefire between Israel and Palestinian militants has taken effect in a bid to end nearly three days of violence that has killed dozens of Palestinians. Egyptian officials were at work to bring the sides to an agreement after the flare-up of fighting that saw Israeli aircraft pound targets in Gaza and militants fire hundreds of rockets that reach deep into Israel. Rocket fire and airstrikes continued until the scheduled start of the truce before midnight local time. More than 40 Palestinians were killed in the violence, including 15 children and four women. You can find more on this and all the stories we're covering at voanews.com. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Today is Monday, August 8th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, a ceasefire between Israel and Palestinian militants takes effect in a bid to end nearly three days of violence. An Islamic Jihad spokesman says the extremist group still has a large arsenal and that rocket fire will continue. On Sunday, dozens of rockets were fired, including at the outskirts of Jerusalem and the southern city of Beersheba. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in South Africa to counter Chinese and Russian influence in the region. The Secretary of State's second trip to Africa and his first to South Africa, the continent's most developed economy and a key democratic ally, comes after a flurry of visits to the region by top Chinese and Russian officials. And the U.S. Senate approves economic package of slowing global warming, pharmaceutical costs, while taxing big corporations. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Russian forces have begun an assault on two key cities of Bakhmut and Avivka in eastern Ukraine, Donetsk region. They also kept up rocket and shellings attacks on other Ukrainian cities, including one close to Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Russian shelling also killed five civilians and injured 14 others in the next region. These are six more ships carrying agricultural cargo held up by the war in Ukraine have received authorization to leave the country's Black Sea ports. The body that oversees an international deal intended to get 20 million tons of grain out of Ukraine to feed people around the world said loaded vessels were cleared to depart on Sunday. A ceasefire between Israeli and Palestinian militants have taken effect in a bid to end nearly three days of violence that has killed dozens of Palestinians. Egyptian officials had worked to bring the sides to an agreement after the flare-up of fighting that saw Israeli aircraft pound targets in Gaza and militants fire hundreds of rockets that reached deep into Israel. The Associated Press reports more than 40 Palestinians were killed in the violence, including 15 children and four women. Linda Granstein reports for VOA from Jerusalem. Israelis who live near the Gaza Strip have spent much of the past three days in bomb shelters. Adele Reamer lives in Nirim, a kibbutz located just over a kilometer from the Gaza border. It's scary. It is scary going outside. Like you, you count your steps, you, you count the distance between, we have these external safe rooms. So you take maybe a, a slightly longer path, but one that you know has these external safe rooms, reinforced concrete safe rooms, every 100 meters or so. So life here is, I mean, you don't get used to it. Nobody gets used to 
to stuff like this, but we know how to deal with it. An Islamic Jihad spokesman says the extremist group still has a large arsenal and that rocket fire will continue. On Sunday, dozens of rockets were fired, including at the outskirts of Jerusalem and the southern city of Beersheba. Israeli analysts like General Eitan Dangot says that the conflict for now is contained but could spiral if the Islamist Hamas movement, which controls Gaza, becomes involved. From Israel's point of view, Hamas is outside of this escalation. We have, no, of course, nothing to do with the population in Gaza, more than 2 million people. Analysts say it seems that Hamas supports a ceasefire and does not want to become drawn into the fighting. Meanwhile, China, France, Ireland, Norway, and the United Arab Emirates have requested a closed U.N. Security Council meeting Monday to discuss the developments in Gaza. Linda Gradstein for VOA News, Jerusalem. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in South Africa in what analysts say is an attempt to counter Chinese and Russian influence in the region. Relations between the U.S. and South Africa became strained during President Donald Trump's time in office. President Joe Biden has taken pains to repair them. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine has proved contentious. Kit Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. The Secretary of State's second trip to Africa and his first to South Africa, the continent's most developed economy and a key democratic ally, comes after a flurry of visits to the region by top Chinese and Russian officials. Analysts say that after disregarding Africa for some time, the U.S. is now playing catch-up and trying to counter the growing influence of Beijing and Moscow in the region in what some say has elements of a new Cold War. Washington also wants to build support for Ukraine, as many African governments have been loath to condemn Russia's invasion, in part due to the Soviet Union's support for African liberation movements during the years when the continent threw off colonial rule. Stephen Grust, head of the African Governance and Diplomacy Program at the South African Institute for International Affairs, said he doubted South Africa would be pushed into criticizing Russia, its partner, along with China, in the BRICS group of countries. And, but I think uh, Secretary Blinken is not going to find a receptive audience for his message that South Africa must come down on the side of the West and the US in particular on the Ukraine-Russian conflict. Meanwhile, Bob Wakesa, director of the African Center for the Study of the United States at Witwatersrand University in Johannesburg, notes that China's influence in Africa has grown considerably and many African leaders look to Beijing for no-strings-attached infrastructure investments. Russia, too, to a far lesser extent, has made investments in the continent, and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov made a four-country visit to Africa last month. And so it's actually true, then, that uh, there's some form of Cold War, even if it's not the kind of Cold War we saw from the end of the uh, World War II, uh, but it's a form of geopolitical competition, and the U.S., um, must therefore be prepared to be seen to be competing with um, other powers for influence in Africa. Nontobeko Lela, a researcher at the South African Office for the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, says negative comments about Africa and other developing countries by former U.S. President Donald Trump did nothing to improve relations. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. Foreign ministers from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations wrapped up their annual meetings in Phnom Penh with a plea for peace in the South China Sea, warning the hunter in Myanmar and plans to bolster COVID-19 crushed economies. Luke Hunt reports. 
Foreign ministers, diplomats and delegates from about 40 countries gathered here with nine of ten foreign ministers from ASEAN. Among them were US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and Foreign Minister Wang Yi of China. But the visit to Taiwan by US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi overshadowed sessions otherwise preoccupied with Myanmar, the South China Sea and the COVID-19 pandemic. Myanmar's Foreign Minister was absent. The country was banned from ASEAN meetings following the military takeover there last year and its execution of four democracy activists on July 25 had a further chilling effect. Praxicon, Cambodian Foreign Minister, and host of this year's sessions, described talks as frank, candid, lively and heated. He indicated a significant shift in attitudes toward Myanmar, saying the military regime had failed to build any trust within ASEAN. And without this trust, the fight will continue and the political process will never start because no one will come if they fear for their life. So, building trust is the most important. While the meetings were being held, China responded to Pelosi's Taiwan visit by declaring a live-fire zone on Taiwan's east flank and firing rockets. In Phnom Penh, Yi abandoned talks with Japan and walked out on a gala dinner. An ASEAN communique stressed the need to recognise the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which China has refused to recognise since losing a court battle with the Philippines in 2016. Blinken told reporters the Chinese response to the Pelosi visit was excessive and US aircraft carriers will remain on standby. In short, the world will see us continue to support the status quo on the Taiwan Strait and advance our shared goals throughout the Indo-Pacific. That is what the region expects of us, to be a steady and responsible leader. A top concern for most ASEAN members remained the pandemic and a need to strengthen health care and promote growth in economies that have been crushed by COVID-19. The communique said needed measures include bolstering digital connectivity, supply chains and jobs for women while promoting carbon neutrality to counter climate change. All eyes are now on the ASEAN summit here in November when leaders are expected to announce what action will be taken against Myanmar while endorsing the recommendations made in the 29-page communique issued by their foreign ministers. Luke Hunt for VOA News, Phnom Penh, Cambodia. President Biden ends his most recent COVID quarantine, leaving the White House today for the first time since becoming infected with the coronavirus last month. Associated Press correspondent Judy Walker reports. President Biden ends his most recent COVID quarantine, leaving the White House Sunday for the first time since becoming infected with the coronavirus last month. Reporters yelled questions as Biden made his way to board Marine One. How are you feeling? He said, I'm feeling good. The president was on his way to join First Lady Jill Biden at Rehoboth Beach in his home state of Delaware. 
Biden's doctor says the 79-year-old tested negative for two straight days in a row and continues to feel well. The president, who is fully vaccinated and boosted, had a rare rebound case of COVID after taking the antiviral Paxlovid. Biden is scheduled to travel to flood-ravaged eastern Kentucky Monday. Meanwhile, Johns Hopkins reports almost 115,000 new COVID cases last week in the U.S. I'm Julie Walker. The Senate has approved the Democrats' big election year economic package. The legislation is less ambitious than President Joe Biden's original domestic goals, but it embodies deep-rooted party dreams of slowing global warming, moderating pharmaceutical costs, and taxing big corporations. Debate began Saturday and went round the clock into Sunday afternoon. Democrats had swatted down about three dozen Republican efforts to torpedo the legislation. The House seems on track to provide final congressional approval when it returns briefly from summer recess on Friday. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. The UN Human Rights Office says journalists in Cambodia are facing increasing threats and being prevented from doing their jobs amid growing restrictions on press freedom and civic and political rights. Lisa Schreier reports for VOA from Geneva. The UN Human Rights Agency's report issued Wednesday describes press freedom in Cambodia from January 2017 until local elections held this June. The findings reveal a steady deterioration of democratic rights in the country. The report's authors say the country's media is in a perilous state as Cambodia prepares for elections again this year and in 2023. They say journalists working in the country today face harassment and pressure mainly through the criminal justice system. 65 journalists were interviewed and surveyed as part of the report. Human rights spokesman Jeremy Lawrence tells VOA that 80% of those surveyed said they had experienced surveillance and interference during their work. For years now, the authorities in Cambodia have um, actively adopted legislation restricting uh, civic space generally uh, in Cambodia and, and press freedoms in particular. This is the laws and other instruments have been adopted, which are empowering the authorities to censor and place journalists and others under surveillance. Um, and extend the government's ability to target media work and freedom of expression through the courts themselves. Since January 2017, Lawrence says the UN Rights Office in Cambodia has documented the cases of 23 journalists who have faced criminal charges for disinformation, defamation or incitement because of their work. The, the wide-ranging powers which have been uh, to block information and and, and punish uh, unspecific crimes. These should be scrapped. And when I, what I'm referring to is specifically the laws. So the, the law that was introduced around COVID-19 and the decree that was introduced earlier this year uh, on the establishment of the National Internet Gateway. 
The law on COVID-19 measures enables the government to impose restrictions to curb the spread of infectious diseases. It contains large fines and prison sentences of up to 20 years. Journalists who oppose the measure and report on it can be and have been fined and punished. The Internet Gateway decree, if implemented, would manage all Internet traffic into and out of Cambodia. Human rights officials warn the decree gives the government wide-ranging powers to block information and punish unspecified crimes. The UN Human Rights Office submitted the draft report to the Cambodian government for factual comments June 20th. It says the government's response, which was received July 6th, has been incorporated throughout the report. The authors of the report have not specified the changes requested by Cambodian authorities. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Somali members of parliament gathered at the presidential palace in the capital Mogadishu Sunday and overwhelmingly endorsed the new cabinet ministers appointed by Prime Minister Hamzi Abdibare last week. During the vote, several mortal explosions hit the capital. Mohamed Dasani reports from Mogadishu. Somali parliament speaker Adan Mohamed Nur Medobe told the gathering at the palace's highly fortified Villa Hargeisa that 29 members of parliament voted in favor of the cabinet. Seven voted against it and one abstained. Prime Minister Hamza Abdi Barre addressed Parliament after the vote and welcomed the outcome. He said, I want to pledge another time that we will work on how to help our people who are facing droughts to work on security and implement our program that is in front of you while we are working with unity and accountability to overcome all the challenges we are facing. I want to thank you again for your overwhelming approval among the ministers whom Parliament endorsed was Mukhtar Robo Ali, now as Abu Mansur, the former deputy leader and spokesman in the militant group Al-Shabaab. He is now becoming the religious advice minister. Mursal Mohammed Khalif, a member of the federal parliament, spoke to VOA about the approval process. Despite a handful of members of parliament trying to create chaos uh, during the proceedings, the overwhelming majority of parliamentarians, 229 of them, voted in favor of approving the new cabinet. I'm very excited to have been a part of those proceedings, and I wish all the new cabinet members success in their securing their duties. Anwar Abdifatah Bashir is a lecturer at Somali National University and Horn of Africa, political analyst. He told VOA by phone that the new government is taking over at crucial time. And this came when Somalia is facing a number of challenges including but not limited, protracted drought, insecurity within the country, as well as the border with Ethiopia, where Al-Shabaab resentfully attacked and intruded in the Somali region in Ethiopia. Mohamed Daisane for VOA News, Mogadishu. This is Science in a Minute. The Korea Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter, South Korea's first mission to the moon, was launched on August 4th aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida. 
The orbiter, nicknamed Denori, which is Korean for Enjoy the Moon, was developed and is managed by the Korea Aerospace Research Institute, or CARI. It carries four South Korean instruments and one device developed and built by the U.S. According to a CARI press release, the spacecraft is expected to arrive at the moon in mid-December and begin its planned one-year mission in January 2023. Included among its planned mission objectives are study the lunar environment, its topography and resources, verify space internet technology, and identify potential landing sites for future missions. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Hi, this is Larry London, and Border Crossings is with you every day, playing requests and dedications starting at 1500 Universal. And throughout the month of August, I'm giving away the new Now 83 CD, which features Kendrick Lamar, Dove Cameron, Tyga, Imagine Dragon, Shawn Mendes, Diplo, and the list goes on and on. The weekend, Camila Cabello, Doja Cat. It's all on Border Crossings at 1500 Universal. Listen to win right here on The Voice of America. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinedua in Washington. Have a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. On November 20, 2020, Burma's National League for Democracy Party, or NLD, won an overwhelming majority of votes in the national election. Less than three months later, the Burmese military seized control of Burma's government and detained the country's leaders, including State Councilor Aung San Suu Kyi and President Nguyen Myint, as well as members of their political party. 
The regime launched the coup on February 1, 2021, as the newly elected parliament was preparing for its initial session. The regime used lethal force to suppress protests throughout the country. According to the NGO Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, Burmese security forces killed over 2,000 people and arbitrarily arrested over 14,000. The military also expanded abusive operations in ethnic minority areas, displacing more than 750,000 people. In an attempt to stop the bloodshed, leaders of the nine other ASEAN countries met with Burma's military commander-in-chief, General Min Aung Lang. They prevailed upon him to agree to the five-point consensus by which the Burmese military regime agreed to end the violence in Burma, to hold dialogue among all parties, to accept the appointment of a special envoy, to accept humanitarian assistance by ASEAN, and to allow the special envoy to meet with all parties. Unfortunately, the agreement changed nothing as the military regime has consistently failed to uphold its commitments. It's unfortunately safe to say that we've seen no more positive movement, said Secretary of State Antony Blinken. We continue to see the repression of the Burmese people. We continue to see violence perpetrated on them by uh, the regime. We continue to see virtually the entire opposition in jail or in exile. And we continue to see a terrible humanitarian situation, exacerbated by the fact that the regime is not delivering what's necessary for the people. We will continue to look for ways that we and other countries can effectively put pressure on the regime to move back to the democratic path, said Secretary Blinken. Regional support for the regime's adherence to the five-point consensus developed by ASEAN is critical. All the ASEAN countries need to continue to demand an immediate cessation of violence, the release of political prisoners, and a restoration of uh, Burma's democratic path. All countries have to continue to speak clearly about what the regime is doing in its ongoing repression and brutality, said Secretary Blinken. We have an obligation to the people of Burma to hold the regime accountable. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 